Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As we stand on the threshold of a new year, are you feeling stuck and plateaued professionally or personally? If the days have settled into a predictable rhythm and time seems to slip by without excitement, this could be the ideal moment to invigorate your career and personal life. That's right, Johnny. Embrace the month of January to ignite a transformation within yourself and unlock the potential of your unique X Factor. Discover the secrets to mastering elite human dynamics that will revolutionize your world. Change begins when you're ready. Get in on our X-Factor Accelerator New Year, New Use special pricing this month to get ready to take 2024 head on and achieve your biggest goals. Inside the X-Factor Accelerator program, you'll rapidly grow your influence, make an impact in any room, and find your purpose. After coaching over 10,000 clients, backed by 17 years of research and training, we know how you can make immediate results and impact your career and social life. Receive personalized guidance, accelerated skill development, and strategies to unlock your unique X Factor, allowing you to effortlessly stand out, be unforgettable, and leave an indelible impact. No cookie-cutter approach here. Our programs are tailored to your unique skill set, ensuring you get results as fast as possible. Join our incredible network of professionals, visionary entrepreneurs, elite military special forces, and engineers who are sealing deals, fostering friendships, and influencing high-value individuals. Stop delaying your full potential. December marks the perfect time to commit to a new you and get huge savings on our marquee training program. Seize the opportunity today at unlockyourxfactor.com and make 2024 your best year yet. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets so you have the cheat code to succeed with people. Every episode is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research in the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it, in order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, successfully recovered introvert, entrepreneur, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, rock and roller, and co-founder here at The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women all they need to know about communication, networking, and relationships. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. Now let's kick off today's show. Decision-making is one of the key skills you must develop to succeed in work, love, and life. 
Today, we gathered our favorite decision-making experts to share how they overcome their cognitive biases and use science to become better decision-makers. The world's experts on decision-making featured in this compilation are Annie Duke, a former professional poker player turned author and coach. We interviewed her for her book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, and this is her second time joining us on the show. David Siegel, the CEO of Meetup.com and the author of the book, Decide and Conquer. David joined us to discuss his guide to leadership decision-making. Dan Ariely, the professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University and author of many best-selling books on human behavior and decision-making. He shared with us how to defeat indecision and regret. And Shane Parrish, a former intelligence officer and the author of Clear Thinking, Turning Extraordinary Moments into Extraordinary Results. Now, before we begin, Annie Duke shares an important mindset shift around decision-making we all need to hear. So I think there's a lot of things that I do and that I recommend that are around getting it to another level deep. And it has to do with that idea of like, everything is relative, right? So, so I'll give you sort of the overall example, right? I know that I know very little about the game of poker in terms of what there is to be known about it. It's a really, really, really complex game. And I am just a mere human. And so I know some things about the game, but in comparison to like what perfection would look like, I'm a disaster. So you might think, oh, okay, well then how could she ever be confident when she plays? I mean, I haven't played since 2012. I would, I don't think I could, would be particularly good today. But at the time when I actually was doing well, I go a different level deep. And I think about that, well, but how am I relative to other people who are also facing the same problem? And I think that that's where you can really find the confidence in hard things. Because if you can find ways, and and hopefully my books help people do this, if you can find ways that you think that, yeah, it's true that if I were to measure myself against perfection, that I would be an absolute disaster. What really matters, though, is how I am compared to other people who are in the same situation. So if you're facing a situation, like whether it's going into a negotiation or a business situation or a job interview or a sale or something like that, where you feel like you're not really in a winning spot, but if you feel like you can handle that better than another person can, that's what really matters. Because all of us in our life, like, I mean, to use a poker analogy, we're going to have a random deal. We're going to have some good hands and we're going to have some bad hands. And we're going to have some mediocre right. hands. That's just true. What makes you win or lose is do you do better with those than other people? That doesn't mean you're never going to make a mistake. And it doesn't mean that sometimes you're going to have to play a bad hand. Of course, you're going to have to sometimes. You're going to get into bad spots. You're going to be dealt bad cards. But if you know, if you really believe that you have a good process that allows you to make better decisions than other people, then you can find confidence in that second order knowledge. And by that, what I mean is like sometimes you can be in a situation where it's a bad situation, so you are going to lose to it. But if you lose less than other people do in that situation, oh my gosh, you're going to win so much in life, right? I mean, that, that's the thing. It's like all about like, am I losing less than other people would in this situation? And if you really have confidence in that, you know, I think that's where you find the confidence. So I'm going to play this hand better than other people, even though it sucks. Now, there are two problems with decision-making. Number one, we wait too long or are afraid to make the wrong decision. Number two, we scrutinize small decisions and end up screwing up the big ones. In the face of waiting too long to make decisions and being miserable in the meantime, it's the worst possible outcome. 
And this is why we put deadlines and accountability on decisions and milestones with our X Factor Accelerator members. We take the second guessing and ruminating out of the picture so that you can take action required to make progress. Annie Duke breaks it down for us. This is the thing. It's like we, we've all had those friends who come and complain about the relationship that they're in. And then it's like, you know, and, and they're saying things like, but I've put so much time into it, right? Like we can just go back, right back to sunk costs, right? I've put so much time and effort into it. And I don't want that all to be for naught. And then a year later, they're still in the relationship and you're, you're just, it's rinse and repeat and it can go on. You know, now they waste five more years of their life, not happy because they're trying to protect the time they already put in. So if you can get someone to stop and say, okay, I understand that you're unhappy and I also understand you're not going to break up with the person today, but how long are you okay with this? Like you have to set a deadline. I mean, I think this is really important to have some sort of deadline. How long are you okay with it? Okay, well, I can do this for six more months. Okay, so in six months, what is it that you're going to see that's going to tell you that this has turned around? What is it that you're going to see that is going to tell you that it hasn't? And what would be the inputs to get you to a good version of the future? That might be like counseling, for example, right? And then once you've done that, now notice I'm not saying here, here are the inputs. They're saying that. I'm not, I'm not saying you should only be okay with this for six months. They're saying it. I'm not saying I'm going to give you a list of the things that would tell you this isn't work out anymore. They're generating that for themselves. So all it's doing is basically taking that that intuition from Barry Starr, right, that he sort of blew up. We think that when we see the signals that we're going to react to them, it's saying, okay, we now know we're not going to react to them well if we're trying to deal with it in the moment when we're in it, when we're in the midst of the decision. But if we can identify those signals in advance, then maybe we can do that, particularly if we have someone who we're we're accountable to, someone who's helping us to think through the problem, somebody who's coaching us through to help us get to the ability to set a good deadline, to be able to think through what those kill criteria are, and they're going to hold us accountable to it. We put little effort into small decisions and a lot of effort into medium decisions and comparatively little effort into big decisions. This process doesn't scale as you'd expect. In this next clip, Dan Ariely shows us how easy we can get swept up in our emotions with decision-making. The bigger the decision, the more we tend to rely on our emotions. If the question is, are we, are we bias-free as decisions get bigger? Uh, the answer is no. And I, I think what we have is we have like a non linear relationship. So I think, look, with, with small decisions, should I have coffee? You know, should I have this donut? We don't pay a lot of attention to it and we make mistakes. When we get to medium-sized decisions, which vi- digital camera to get or should I get which l- level of, um, I don't know what, the new phone, then people invest a lot of time doing research. I'm not saying that we get it better, but at least we spend a lot of time on this. And then when it comes to really big decisions, like who to marry <laughs> and you know what house to buy, people are spending substantially less amount of research than, than you would think they would. So, you know, let's say if people spend three seconds deciding which donut to get, and they spend 17 hours deciding which digital camera to get, and 100 hours deciding what car to get, when they move to a house who to marry, uh, whether to have kids or not, it doesn't increase from there. It actually goes down. And partially is that when decision becomes harder, 
We can't handle it. It's just very, very tough. Ah, the dreaded analysis paralysis and the opportunity cost of lost time due to decision making. In this next clip, Shane Paris explains the process of how we get stuck in our decision making processes and how to navigate that process. Yeah, I think one of the concepts we talk about in the book is sort of ASAP or ALAP, and you can make a decision right away if it's sort of a two-way door and there's low consequences, the cost of failure is really low. You can just make that decision on the spot. You go to the grocery store, they don't have your toothpaste. I mean, you don't have to ruminate over this very long. You just pick up a new brand. If it doesn't work, you know, it's like two bucks or like it's like 10 bucks now. It used to be like two bucks (laughs) a couple years ago. Uh, And, you know, the cost of undoing that decision is really low. something like a TV, and I, I noticed this with friends, they would spend weeks ruminating over a TV. If you ascribed minimum wage to their time, they actually like paid for the TV in research. Double, triple. And, <laughs> right? And, and so I came up with the, the concept like ASAP, ALAP, and, and how do you know it's as late as possible? Well, you know, I came up with the, the idea of flop. First lost opportunity, Right. Stop, flop, or no. So you stop gathering useful information, first lost opportunity, or you know what to do. Those three situations, that's when you make a decision. So, But you don't ruminate in the meantime. You just let things percolate. So you don't obsess. And what happens is we start obsessing over these decisions. And, and so why is it that we, we end up doing this? And then we end up with 50 decisions in our head. And what happens when we do that? We get emotional because we got all this, these threads. These are all like little processing threads running in our head. What do we want to do in that moment? I don't know if everybody else is like me, but it's like, I got to get this off my plate. I'm just going to decide. What do we do when we just decide? I'm just trying to check a box. I'm not trying to get towards the best outcome now. This TV, this dishwasher, you know, like you just start going through these decisions and you're in the messy middle almost, right? Like you, you sort of, you're not being forced to make a decision. You don't have all the information and you're not thinking clearly. So how do we avoid all this stuff? Well, half of those decisions can be made right on the spot. So you don't have 50 threads. You might be able to have like eight or nine at one time, but most of us have like 50 and they're just ongoing. Make the invisible visible, write stuff down, right? Like don't try to remember your grocery list. Just take out your iPhone and keep a note or a sticky. I use stickies a lot. Uh, but I, I think it's so important to sort of think about how do we avoid analysis paralysis? And one of the other ways we do that is we know what matters. We know what destination we're going to go to. And, and we have the concept in the book of sort of like picking the most important thing. And everybody's like, oh, that sounds great. How do you actually do that, <laughs> right. right? And so we use stickies and, and the concept of like battling it out, right? And it doesn't mean that there's only one thing that matters, But if you're forced to choose which thing matters the most and stickies, you just sort of battle them. Like you hold up two sticky notes together and you're like, this one I value more than the other. You write down all the things and then you pick up another one and you compare it against the one in your hand that matters the most. And at the end of the day, you're left with one. And now, you know, instinctively, maybe not quite rationally, you know, you're not thinking totally through it, but you have an instinct about this is the most important thing. And then you can check that instinct, which is like, is that really true? Yeah, that is. Okay, now I know the most. It doesn't mean it's the only thing, but now I know what to focus on, what to optimize for, how to be proactive about going to get that. And I can communicate it to my team at work. So if I'm not around, everybody else knows what's the most important thing. So they can make decisions without me, 
which is also scary, right? Yeah. One of the, the ego reasons that we don't do this is, you know, we don't want people making decisions without us. We want to feel really valuable. As much as I don't want to be a micromanager, I really like it when you come to me and like I tell you what to do and I feel good about myself. But then we reach the ceiling of brute force. There's only so much of that we can do. And it ends up putting this invisible ceiling on us uh, that we don't know we have. And my friend uh, Brent Bishore explained that concept to me, which is, you know, we only have so much time in a day. We're trying to create leverage with that time. If you're micromanaging every detail, every process, every decision goes to you, well, that's going to consume all your time. And so now you're less leverageable than you otherwise could be. And I want to leverage things. I mean, I value time a lot. I want to outsource things that I don't have to do. I want people who are better at that thing to, to do, do it. it than me. Yeah, people who people specialize in like all the stuff that you're doing, either in life or at work. You want them to do it. They're going to get better outcomes. And, and you sort of have to learn to sort of step back and let go and let other people take the spotlight. And that's really hard to do, but it's so powerful. Our core values can act as a compass to guide us through our decision-making process and create goals that are important to us. This is why we work with every X Factor Accelerator member to be clear about your desired results and the steps that you need to take to achieve success. Take the stress out of your life by learning what's most important to you. Clarity ultimately leads to confidence. Your blind spots are usually hidden behind heuristics and biases. This is why we call them blind spots. Due to your belief system, you are unable to see a different reality or the right information that gives you insights on your decisions and actions. It's best to have a confidant that is trained to highlight these areas so that new behaviors and perspectives are actualized. In this clip, Annie Duke and Dan Ariely highlight the most common biases we need to overcome to make the right decisions. We don't like to quit when a mental account is in the negative. I invested time, money, etc. This leads to the sunk cost problem. This next clip is on how to combat it. If we're short of a goal, we don't like to walk away. And so this, this also goes back to something that Richard Thaler talks about, which is the way our mental accounting works. We open up a mental account for something like our days driving in the cab or heading up Everest, where the goal is obviously the summit. We now have an account for that. We do not like to close accounts in the losses. What is in the losses means? Well, in this case, it's short of the goal. We just don't like to do it. And if we feel like there's a possibility that we could not have to do that, not actually have to close the account in the losses, we'll really work hard not to do that. And that's separate and apart from um, issues like sunk cost, which is we feel like if we walk away from something short of the goal that we've wasted all the effort that we've put into it thus far or all the money or, or whatever. And all of this stuff makes us end up on the top of Everest in the middle of a blizzard. And we see this over and over again, not just with public works projects, but, but with like investors who don't sell investments that there's a lot of people in crypto right now who are refusing to sell. Right. And because, and I've, I've seen them say, like, I bought it at 50 and it's trading at 23. I can't sell because I won't get my money back. What? But that money's gone. Right. Would you buy it today at 23? That's the question that you should ask yourself. Doing something costs you the chance to do something else instead. The dreaded opportunity cost neglect. So that blind spot is called opportunity cost neglect. <laughs> There's a, we have a name for it. I'm giving you the cognitive science, like behavioral economics term for it. It's called opportunity cost neglect. So this is what we can think about, basically an infinite set of opportunities that are available. Um, but you can't do them all at once because uh, we're humans. We've tried. <laughs> <laughs> Multitasking is not really a thing. So you like it, look, if you're in a monogamous relationship, 
you're in a monogamous relationship, right? Like all the other people that you could be in relationships with aren't available to you in that case. If you're in a job that's, you know, say a nine to five job during that nine to five period that you cannot be in another job, right? Because we just physically can't do that. So what we have to think about is when we choose to engage with something, then we're also choosing to not engage with all the other opportunities that might be available to us. Some of those opportunities have costs associated with them. In other words, if we did them, our life would be worse. But lots and lots of opportunities have gains associated with them. And when we reject those, there is a cost to that. We're rejecting the gains that are associated with the other things that we might choose to do. Right. And this is what we lose sight of. Right. Is we think when we quit hard stop final, we're stopping our progress. But that's not true because you don't really quit things in general to not start something new. And if you're starting something that's better, then you're actually going to speed your progress up. We need to consider the time we spend on a decision as an opportunity cost as well. Dan gives a technique to apply to make a decision, set a deadline. And if you can't decide until the deadline, then make the change. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. 
And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates, all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. We have to start taking time into account and say time is clicking. How much, how much value would I get from this digital camera if I actually had something to use rather than wait for another one, or how much happier would my life be? And we need to quantify that, not easy to do. Um, one, one approach that uh, I, I think is a, is a practical advice helps is to ask people to give themselves a deadline and say, look, every day you're spending time making a decision has some returns, but those days have diminishing returns. At some point, you know, the value of the thousandth day that you think about this is not going to be very valuable. And how many days do you really need to spend making that decision? Give me this number and let's pick that that's your deadline. And by that day, you have to make a decision. And if you haven't made a decision by that day, decide to make the change. And why am I saying that? Like you could say, if you haven't made a decision by that day, um, flip a coin, right? Just, just, it doesn't matter. But the truth is that because we are so much more connected to the path of least resistance to the do nothing, 
if by that day, let's say we decide by, you know, uh, August 13th, uh, you need to do something. If by that day you haven't decided and they look equally appealing to you, most likely you should make a change. Why? Because the not making a change right now is weighing too much in your mind compared to the other options. So most likely it's the more, it's the better option. You're, you're less likely to regret it later. Now let's unpack the omission commission bias or loss aversion status quo bias. We'd rather make a mistake by failing to act than make a mistake by acting. Annie explains a job search example of a C-level exec. In order to talk about status quo bias and omission commission bias, I think we need to step back and, and talk about loss aversion for a second because this is where the interaction becomes really bad. So loss aversion is foundational work originally from 1979 from um, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Daniel Kahneman, also Nobel laureate in the economic sciences. Uh, Amos Tversky wasn't alive at the time that was awarded, so he he didn't receive that. But this is part of prospect theory. And loss aversion basically uh, says that um, we really don't like to start things that, that are associated with some chance of loss. And in fact, we over-index on the losses in comparison to the winds. So this actually becomes a really big problem in enterprises, right? Is that if you swing for the fences, there's a really high chance that you lose in the short run, right? But if I do something that's an incremental change, even the ex though the expected value is lower, there's just a lower chance of any kind of big loss that's associated with it. Um, and so what you'll see in enterprises is that you get a lot of incrementalism and consensus-driven decision-making over the, these sort of big swings that people are willing to make, which is how a startup can beat an enterprise, because startups are, are taking more big swings, right? Okay, so that's that's loss aversion. And then there's another concept, which is called sure loss aversion, um, which is also from Kahneman, which is when we have a loss on the books, we don't like to convert it into a realized loss, right? So we don't want to take a paper loss and turn it into a realized loss or a sure loss. So you could see this, it's related to sunk costs. So if I buy a stock at 50 and it's trading at 40, if I sell it, then I have to realize that $10 loss. But if I hold it, I could maybe get the money back, right? So this, this also, so that makes us not want to convert. Okay, so now we've got this stage set with loss aversion and sure loss aversion. So now let's think about how that interacts with a status quo bias, which is a preference for the status quo, and then also omission commission bias. So omission commission bias, this is something from John Barron, where uh, we see uh, failing to act in a different light as acting. All right. So I'm sure you're familiar with the tro trolley problem. This is kind of an omission commission problem, right? So you've got uh, five people are in the way of a trolley that's going to come run them over. There's a lever, you can pull it, um, but if you pull it, it's going to be diverted onto a track where one person is going to get hit by the trolley. And people are very reticent to pull that lever because one is sort of like the state of affairs. Like, it's just, what can I do? I, it's just nature. Um, and the other is an omission, a, a commission, rather, it feels like an act. And, and we don't want to do that because I'm going to act. So another place where this uh, omission commission bias, and this is where some of the original work was done, is on vaccine hesitancy. If like it's the plan of nature for you to get measles or COVID or something like that, um, we'll prefer that to a possible um, bad outcome that could come from the vaccine itself, even if the chances of harm from the vaccine are much, much lower than the chances of harm from the disease. 
it doesn't matter. We'd prefer to allow nature to run its course, basically, as opposed to do something where we change the state of affairs. All right, so now we've got that all figured out, right? Okay, so let's think, let's bring them all together now. <laughs> it turns out that uh, loss aversion is asymmetric in the sense that where we're recruiting that fear of things going wrong, that fear of realizing those downside outcomes is when we start something. In other words, when we change the state of affairs. So if we switch from the status quo, and sticking with the status quo is an omission, right? If we switch from the status quo to something new, in other words, if like I quit my job to start a new one, or I quit my relationship to start a new one, or I shut a project down to start a new one, um, as we're trying to navigate that decision, we get hyper-focused on the losses that might be associated with the new thing that we're doing in a way that we aren't hyper-focused on those for the thing that we are already doing. Dan Ariely explains the omission commission bias with the example of a friend thinking about a divorce. I have a friend, a very good friend, and he came to me a few years ago and he said, look, I've been married for eight years. Uh, seven of them we've been fighting. And I, I don't know if to continue this relationship or not. And I said, look, I, I don't know what to tell you, right? The pros and the cons, there, there were no kids. But I said, but here is one thing. I said, in your decision, you're thinking about one branch is do nothing and one branch is take an action. And that creates a bias because we are biased toward the no action. So I said, to get yourself to think about it in a more neutral way, imagine that you're not married. Imagine that you met this woman last night for the first time. And imagine that now you have a decision whether you want to marry her or whether you want to never see her again. And, and make the financial decision the same. If you decide to marry her, you'll have more money. If you decide to never see her again, you have to give her half of whatever you have. I mean, make, make it the same way. But don't think of it as a decision that says one branch is do nothing and just continue to, to fight. And one is an action of getting a divorce. Think of both of them as on equal footing. Anyway, they're both much happier married to other people today. But if you think about that approach of saying, I don't want to think about the forks in the road as having, do I do nothing or do I do something? But I want them to say, if I had both of those options on equal footing, which one would I pick? That's a really good starting point. Regret is a product of taking action. I did X and something went wrong leads to regret. I did the same thing I always do and something went wrong does not lead to regret, but is rather seen as being unlucky or an accident. This means we favor inaction over action also ties into the omission commission bias. So when do we regret? Well, what is regret? Regret is this idea that we compare what we have to an imaginary world. And if what we have in the real world is worse than what we have in the imaginary world, we feel bad about it. And if it's better, we feel good about it. Uh, so for example, uh, when would you feel worse? if you missed your flight by two minutes or by two hours? Two minutes, two obviously, minutes, yeah. right? And, and why? Because you run to the gate, you see the plane pulling away, you see seat 2B, and you say, I could have been there. 
And, you know, if the, if the person in line in front of me understood what no liquids is, if the TSA pre actually worked, I mean, you come up with all kinds of things that you say, I could have been there. And because of that, you compare your state of not making it to a hypothetical state of making it, and you feel bad in comparison. If you're late by two hours, you don't come with a counterfactual. You don't say if only. There's not if only I would have been there with a two-hour delay. Or another example, imagine you drive to work and back every day, work and back, work and back, work and back. One day uh, on the way back, a, a tree falls on your, on your car, destroys it completely. The insurance only pays 75%. You are left with some loss. How bad do you feel and for how long? Okay, that's case one. Case two, work and back, work and back every day. One day you decide to go home on the scenic route. You take the scenic route. On that particular day, a tree falls on your car, destroys it. The insurance company pays only 75%. Now you're more upset and for longer. Why? Because in the first case, you did what you did every day. You didn't do anything different. And you can't imagine if only today I took the scenic route, right? It, you, can't, you can't think this way. You're saying, I just did whatever I do every day, right? It just happened. I mean, you're upset, but, but it, there's nothing you can do. If you took the scenic route, now you can say, if only. If only I didn't take, why did I have to take the scenic route today? I, I, I knew it was not a good, you know, and, you, and, you, and, that's, and that's regret. Now, think about the forks in the road. When you do nothing, you can't go back and say, on March 22nd, I made a mistake, right? If you did nothing, there's not a particular day you made a mistake, like you never made an action, but you can't go back to a particular moment. For regret, what you need is a moment you can go back to and hit your head and say, I should have known better. If you take an action, you can regret it. If you don't take an action, very hard to regret it because you don't know what the counterfactual is. Right? So let's say you decide to get um, a divorce. And let's say it was a mistake. You can say, oh, on that day, March 22nd, I should have known. I should have known. Why did I, why did I ask for this divorce? If you don't get a divorce and it was a mistake, you can't go back to a particular day. You say, I, I lived my whole life miserable, right? But you can't, you can't connect it to any particular day. So, so regret creates an additional bias to favor inaction compared to action. It's not that it makes us happy, but, but it's another bias that causes us to favor the no regret option. And the no regret option is the option with the inaction that we don't do anything. Identifying and learning to navigate your blind spots is a freeing feeling. These are the mindset shifts that unchain us from our old patterns. If you find yourself in a repetitive pattern, that is not serving you, it is highly probable that you have a blind spot distorting your perception. CEOs, military personnel, entrepreneurs, and other consultants and advisors pay top dollar to uncover them and break free from poor decision-making. That's right, Johnny. Working with an executive client, Christopher, we recognize he was making a lot of key decisions for his business in the evening to clear his inbox. This led to the availability heuristic and mental overload, creating unneeded stress in his business. 
In fact, a study published in the Journal of Cognition showed that whether you're a morning person or not, the most accurate decision-making happens on the early side of the day between 8 a.m. and 1 p.m. This allowed Chris to recognize that inbox zero was leading to stress and poor decision-making in the evenings. By making the decision to snooze important decisions until the next morning and holding him accountable on his evening decision-making, he saw an increase in his productivity and freed his evenings for friends and family time. Even better night's sleep knowing he was making better decisions according to science. In this next section, our guests help you be a better decision maker with some great tools. How to make better decisions. Do not make decisions in the moment, but give yourself time and use kill criteria. Get yourself a coach, mentor, or therapist. Talk to us, Annie. That then can get us to this place where we can start to say, how can we get better at these decisions, right? And there's basically two strategies. One is to not make the decision in the moment when you're facing it down. Right. So in other words, think in advance about what what could occur in the world that would make it so that you would want to quit. So that's something I do with like if I'm working with somebody who's having trouble letting an employee go, who's having trouble exiting somebody, I'll say, OK, so I know that you don't want to exit them today. Um, how long are you OK with the situation as it stands? And they'll usually say something like six weeks and I'll say, great. So imagine it's six weeks from now. What would you see from this employee that would tell you you should keep them on? What would you see that would tell you that you ought to exit them? So that that would be called kill criteria. That will allow them once six weeks passes to actually be more likely to exit them because it stops you from saying, well, it's sort of that idea of tomorrow is always tomorrow, you know, where it's like. I know they can turn it around and then they say, I know I can turn it around. And then it's six weeks later and they say, I know I I can turn it around to you again. And you don't want to exit them because that feels like your failure. If you actually write down what the criteria would be, it's going to help you exit them. So that's like one strategy. But the other one you just mentioned, AJ, which is get yourself a coach, someone from the outside looking in, because that's that thing that I said about, we all see it in other people. We can see so clearly when they're just like pursuing something that they ought not be pursuing. And imagine then that everybody must be seeing that in you also, but nobody's opening their mouth because you, you didn't set up a relationship that allowed them to open their mouth. And if you just gave them permission or sought out that advice in a real way, whether it's a mentor or therapist or an executive coach or whatever, they're now going to be able to help you through these decisions, right? They're going to help you see Going back to that original question of what's worthwhile to stick to and what's not, and they're going to be help, helping you parse that apart a lot better. Shane breaks down an important concept, speed versus velocity. Velocity has a vector. The question, what would the best version of you do? Imagine a film crew following your perfect version of yourself around. Take it away, Shane. We're programmed to think in terms of speed, but not velocity. And the difference between the two is velocity has a vector. (laughs) So velocity is speed towards a destination, whereas I can run around in a circle and I'm going fast, but I'm really not going anywhere. And, And so once you start thinking in terms of speed towards target, towards destination, towards outcome, it changes things a little bit, right? What outcome am I running towards? Is this outcome worth wanting? That's a different question. And you can use rituals as a way that the best version of yourself, another form of safeguard, right? You can use the rituals, the best version of yourself once you follow them and it becomes ingrained. I did this with my kids. They, they were sort of homeschooled during COVID to the extent that that was even possible. 
And, and then they went, they switched schools after that and they started getting homework again. So they hadn't had homework for a while. And I don't know about everybody else's kids, but my kids hate hated the idea of coming home after school and doing homework, right? So it was a battle and we would do it at a different time every day, right? And, and during this time, right, they paid attention all day in class. They're young. That's hard on them. It's really a struggle. And they have 90 minutes of homework. So they don't go to a school where it's like, here, you know, read this little 10 sentence book and like, that's your homework. It's like, no, they got legit studying homework, tests, exams. And so they come home and it was just, just big power struggle. And I was like, why don't we just create a ritual around this? You come home, you get a, a space. It's about 40 minutes for them to, to come home on the bus. They get a space. They can decompress. They can do their thing. They come home, they shower, and then they come down to the table and they start doing their homework, dining room table. And it took about a month to install this ritual. And every day I would have to like, I wouldn't say force them, but remind them of what they, they wanted to do. And the way that we came up with this is super powerful for adults too. It was like, what would the best version of yourself do? What would it, you, you want A pluses? What would an A plus student do in this situation? Well, they would come home and do this. What would the best version of yourself do? Same thing. Okay, why don't we try that and see how it works? So after a month of doing this consistently every day, and consistency is the key, and I, I want to come back to consistent in a second. I left. So I'm always home for the kids after school, but I wanted to see what would happen if for a few days nobody was there. Yeah. So they came home, they showered. <laughs> They went downstairs and they did their homework. The ritual had taken over where willpower failed. They didn't need discipline. They didn't need willpower. They just followed the ritual. We're biological creatures. This is what we do. We follow the ritual. We follow the culture of the organization. We follow the instinct. The problem is most of us are inconsistent. And consistency is the key to so much in life. It, it's like we're Sisyphus, right? We roll the boulder halfway up the hill and we're like, you know, this is a lot of work. I'm going to come back to this next week. And what we leave and what happens to the boulder, it falls down. You think about like learning a language, Duolingo. I've had hundreds of people I know sign up for Duolingo. <laughs> and man, they're advocates for like two weeks. And then all of a sudden they skip a day. And then all of a sudden they skip another day. And then all of a sudden they're no further ahead than they were. What happened? Consistency matters. You need to be consistent. You need to do just a little bit every day towards your goals. So, so the way to identify the rituals that, that are super important to you or the ones that are getting in the way, and, and I had this thing, and I, I didn't come up with this. I forget who came up with it. I don't want anybody to think it's me. I don't actually come up with most of these ideas. I get them from other people. Uh, but it's imagine a film crew following you around all day. And they're not documenting your life. They're documenting the life you want to have, the success you want to have. What would they see? What would you not want them to see? And then you start acting like the person who gets that success would act. You know, the person uh, that achieves success, maybe they don't wake up in the morning and check their phone and let other people usurp their day. Maybe they're more conscious about how they spend their time. Maybe they avoid all these things that I'm wasting my time on. And, and the biggest thing that we sort of miss is like we often focus on things outside of our control or, again, going back to the, the gas or water on a situation. When we pour gas on a situation, we have to repair that relationship. And all the time that we spend focusing on things we don't control, uh, fixing relationships because we reacted without reasoning, all that time comes at the expense of velocity, which is direction and speed. And it doesn't matter how fast you're going, but if you go inch by inch 
even centimeter by centimeter, but you can pound that result day after day, week after week, month after month, you're going to reach your destination. Now, David Siegel makes the same point about mentors. Number one reason I've been relatively successful from a career standpoint is luck. But the second one after that is definitely the mentors that I've had along the way. Whether it's been people like Kevin Ryan, who was the CEO of DoubleClick at the time, ultimately the person that acquired Meetup and the founder of MongoDB and the Gilt Group and Business Insider and Zola and all these other companies, or David Rosenblatt, who is now the CEO of First Dibs and on the board of IEC and on the board of Twitter. These are people who I've known for 25 years. Luckily, again, it goes back to luck. And whenever I had issues, whenever I had questions, whenever I had insecurities, whenever I just needed someone to be totally vulnerable around, who had no agenda except for helping me and setting me up for as much success as, as I could, um, I went to them and I went to them numerous times for different things and I s seeked out their advice. Because I had that experience, I have a cadre now of 10 to 20 different people that I do the same thing for now. And it is probably one of the most meaningful parts of my life, of my business life, is the cadre of people that can call me about career issues or other challenges that they've had. And I think per your point, having a personal board of advisors, having a group of people that you can call through thick and thin is one of the best things that anyone could do to set themselves up, by the way, both professionally, but I would even say as well, personally as well, to have that group of people on a personal level too. So there's someone, her, her initials are EC. And actually, I got to know her when I first started at Meetup. Unfortunately, she was around initial round of layoffs, but I thought she did a great job. After the layoff, she said to me, you did exactly the right thing. My job was not important. I'm so impressed and we're in good hands that you did it. And then she called me up like a month later and she said, can you be my mentor? Just like that, straight up. And I said, I would love to help you, sure. You know, I'm not able to meet like every week or even every month, but on a quarterly basis, absolutely. I've written some career references for her to go to, you know, business school and, and other schools. But to answer your question, one person just said straight out, I think I could learn from you. Can you be my mentor? And it wasn't some like game or anything like that. It was just open, direct and honest. And that's the best. Just be direct. Another person, I teach at Columbia, so I've had, a, you know, 600 plus students through the years. And someone was decided to want to become a startup founder. She said, could you be on our kind of our board of advisors? I'm like, sure. So, you know, advising her about different things. And she just got a million and a half dollar check round of financing, you know, for her, for her startup as well. So those things just are, are wonderful. So if, I guess my answer is ask directly. And also if there's a business context for um, having someone on an advisor level or board level, then that's another opportunity to be able to kind of pull people in too. In his next clip, David Siegel talks about creating opportunities through taking action. One of the areas in decision-making that people don't prioritize enough is whether or not a decision creates options for yourself or decreases options for yourself. So let's say you're really into finance. You can either go into, you go into a lot of things, but if you choose investment banking, everyone wants to hire an investment banker who's worked for investment banking for two years. Everyone wants that kind of experience. If you become a trader because you love finance, like a specialized commodities macroeconomics trader, the next job you get is a specialized commodities macroeconomics trader. Decreases options. When you have more options and you keep creating options for yourself, if you have a podcast like the two of you, if you let's write a book, if you do all these certain things or write an article for you know um, whatever, for anywhere, 
there are certain actions that could create significant opportunities. And when you have all those opportunities, guess what? Lucky stuff just ends up happening to you because you now have, like you said, a hundred different uh, slot machines all going at the same time. And even though it's only a penny, hey, that penny could still turn into a lot of money versus throwing it all on, you know, red 25 and, you know, going for that and then being disappointed that it doesn't work out. So I think the pri prioritizing optionality in decision making directly results in making decisions that result in better luck. And luck, as I like to say, is hard work. You could work really hard and then lucky stuff will happen. Or you could sit on your butt playing video games all day and, oh, but whoa, me, no lucky stuff ever happens to me. Okay, well, you know, that was a decision you made. Did you know there are automatic rules for success? Shane shares how to create them and make better decisions. So in the book, we talk about things like safeguards, where it's like, how do I prevent this from happening in the first place? And if I can't prevent it, how do I deal with it when it happens? And one of the things that we talk about that has been life-changing to a lot of people who've read an early copy of the book is automatic rules for success, yeah. which is basically mm -hmm. having the best version of yourself pre-decide what you will do in certain situations. But it has to be a rule. So we've been taught our entire life, you need to follow the rules. I used to get polygraphed on this stuff. Like this is like, you have to follow the rules. You can't break the rules. Speed limit 60, you got to go 60. You show up on time, you do all the things that you're told to do. And so all these rules were programmed to follow, but we've never thought about how do I switch this around and use those rules to my advantage? How do I create an environment, an artificial environment, where my own rules are helping me? So you talked about drinks and social pressure. This is one that a lot of people feel, or dessert's another one, right? Yeah. You're trying to eat healthy. And, and so common scenarios are like, I'm going out to dinner with some friends. I don't want to have dessert. But now, every time this happens, I have to make a choice. And that choice, I'm relying on willpower. And eventually, everybody loses the battle with willpower. And that choice is, I'm not going to have dessert. Because I've thought of it as a choice. But what if we create a rule, and our rule is, I just don't eat dessert. That's my rule. My dessert once a year on Christmas, whatever you, you want it to be. But my rule is, I don't eat dessert. Well, now when you're in the exact same situation with your friends, you're out, you just have to follow your rule. But more importantly, when you tell them it's your rule, they won't push back because we've been taught not to push back on rules. And so if you just simply say, my rule is I don't eat dessert, you might have to do it twice, but they'll stop pushing it on you. That social pressure will be so much less and you'll be able to do the things that you want to do. Your desired behavior will become your default behavior. And this is so powerful. Another example of how this has impacted people is working out every day. I don't know about you guys. I don't like working out. Uh, a lot of my friends, you know, don't <laughs> like working out either. A lot of them love working out. Those people, this rule is not for you. Uh, but work out every day. So about two, three years ago, during COVID, I was like struggling to do these like two or three time a week workouts. And I, what I found was like, I was listening to this voice in my head, which is like, oh my God, you've had a long day. You have so much to do tonight. There's a million emails to reply to. Why don't we skip working out today and we'll do extra tomorrow? And that little lie, right? I started negotiating yeah. with myself. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> totally. You're right. That sounds great. Why don't we skip today and I'll do an extra 20 minutes tomorrow? Tomorrow rolls around and that little voice is like, oh man, I got you yesterday. I'm going to get you today. 
<laughs> and, and so I just created this rule and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to work out every day and see what happens. And that doesn't mean I have time for a 90 minute workout every day or even 60 minutes. So I reduce the duration or scope of what I'm doing, but I do it every day. It might mean I go to the gym and do squats. It might mean I just go for a little run. I do something that sweats every single day. And since I've done that, it's been so powerful because that little voice in my head doesn't say, should we work out today? You've got a lot to do. It's like, how do I fit this in? And what is the duration and scope of how I fit it in? And that conversation helps the best version of me get what I want out of life. And these things are just so powerful, right? I have all these little automatic rules. Like if I'm out with business colleagues, I stop drinking at nine o'clock. Nothing good happens at nine with people that aren't your friends. <laughs> you know, I invest in an index fund every month. Uh, I don't have meetings usually until 12 o'clock in the day. Uh, why? Because my rule is I don't have meetings. I mean, there's violations of that rule on occasion, but I want the best time of my day, which for me is the morning, reserved for the biggest opportunity that I have. And that opportunity, one of the reasons that we don't focus and we don't get the outcomes we want is that we don't have the time for our priority. We're always searching for this time. Oh, I know what's really important, but I don't have time to do it. Well, it's like, well, why don't we block off time every day? And I know a lot of people are probably listening to this going, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be able to block off till noon? Well, I started doing this when I worked at an intelligence agency. I didn't block off till noon because that would have been impossible. First, I started with 15 minutes mm -hmm. and I just gradually expanded it. You look at my calendar. I was going out six months, but I was booking a meeting with myself six months out. And I'm like, okay, from 8.30 to 9 every day, I don't have meetings. So I start booking. And then I would go from 8.30 to 9.30. And I would gradually just increase the time the further I got in the calendar. And then lo and behold, when this time ran, came around, I'm like, oh, I got this free time. And I can start doing these things that I, I really know I need to focus on. But I don't have to find the time so that my outcomes started to improve. And then we started to do it as a team because I'm like, well, if this works for me, I bet you it works for other people. And with it being a rule, you don't have to draw on your willpower and decision making each and every time someone goes to try to schedule a meeting with you, each and every time someone pushes back on your morning. Yeah, totally. So I get this idea from Daniel Common. I was like in his uh, penthouse in New York and we were chatting and his phone rang and he took the phone and, and towards the end of it, he was like, my rule is I don't say yes on the phone. I'll get back to you tomorrow. And I was like... That sounds really powerful. Tell me about that. Like, but he, he didn't think of he didn't think of how to apply this to all these broad situations. But he hated saying yes on the phone because he often felt the social pressure. Sure. To go along with whatever the person was. Do you want to meet for coffee tomorrow? Well, no, I don't want to meet for coffee. But you don't want to say that because you don't want to push back on people. Do you want to talk at my event? No, I don't want to talk at your event. And so he had all of these people coming inbound to him, asking him to do stuff that he really didn't want to do. And his way to dissipate the situation was like, my rule is I just don't say yes on the spot. I'll get back to you tomorrow. And he's like, it's so funny because I went from saying yes uh, about 90% of the time to saying yes about 10% of the time by inserting, what did we do? We inserted this pause, the, the space between stimulus and response. So we took something that we know exists, stimulus response, and we've inserted through an artificial environment, through a safeguard, we've inserted a way to pause. 
David describes one of his anchoring principles, mission, vision, values. I really like grounding things in anchors. And to me, the anchors of culture are your mission, your vision, and your values. When you have those specific anchors, it allows you to point out each of those things and ensure that that's imbued in the organization. And when I say imbued, I mean in our recruiting process, we use that for hiring. In performance management and 360 feedback, we evaluate people based on those values. If we're gonna, when we promote people, we promote people based on those values. We have awards, like a step-up award for people who step up, who demonstrate that value. And we incent people based on those values. At one point, believe it or not, WeWork had said to me, you don't need meetup values anymore. We're going to give you WeWork's values and WeWork's values are going to be meetup's values. And that's how it's going to work. And I was like, no, no, no. You can't just like impose values as a parent company. You know, that doesn't work. So that's, again, an example where sometimes your highest fighting is internal and not external. It's kind of going back and forth with Adam and the, and the HR department at WeWork around things that they just try to push down that may have made sense for a 10,000-person organization, but hell no didn't make sense for a 250-person company. Johnny, do you have any rules that are important to you? How do you help X-Factor Accelerator members install them? You know, AJ, for myself, when I was in my 20s, I, I was one of those people who just looked for way too much information. And due to that, a lot of times you could find, especially with the internet, all the information in the world. In fact, so much information that it prohibits you from taking any action at all. And I had to come up with a rule that would, would be my kill criteria in order to take action. And for myself, the rule is, Sometimes there's no right or wrong decisions, only decisions that you make right. And this allows me then to just take action sometimes if it's a heads or tails situation. And then I can focus my efforts and energy on making that decision the right one for me. And AJ, I have a great story about one of our exec clients. His name is Steve. And for Steve, he had some situations and some self-doubt due to some emotions that he had about himself. And those, those emotions stem from certain childhood traumas that was prohibiting from taking action. But once we weeded all through those beliefs, he realized how illogical they actually were. But yet he still had the feelings of nervousness and anxiety to move forward. But due to understanding, that what he believed was illogical, we now realized it was time to step into the unknown and brave it. And now, rather than trying to think our way through his decisions, he was able to take action and to progress. Every step that he had taken into the unknown made him feel better about the process, but also himself. Now, sometimes quitting is the answer. In fact, we need to stop looking at quitting as something bad. Annie explains why. I want people to stop having a, the, a bias against this word quit. And the, the reason that I so want to do that is that I'm not taking an anti-grit position. I'm taking a, you have to have both, right? That just sticking to things for the, just because you think that sticking to things is good is not going to create success for you. You have to stick to the right things. So we can think about during our lives, we're sampling a whole bunch of different stuff, right? Like we're trying out a lot of different things. Think about it like dating. 
right? Like you go out on a lot of dates, but you quit most of them so that you can stick with, with the person or, you know, that, that you would like to actually commit to. And it's true of anything, whether it's like careers or, or major majors, relationship jobs, projects, products that you're developing, success actually comes from mostly quitting and then being very, very picky about what you really put your time and energy into. And I feel like the dialogue around grit has gotten to this point where it's just like, oh, I stick to things. And so I'm awesome because it's this amazing character trait. And yes, it's a great character trait, but not across the board, absent context. Like, why would you stay on a road where there was an accident if you could exit it? We have to learn that it's okay. Not only is it okay to exit things, but it's necessary to get you to where you want to go on the really the fastest that you can. Entrepreneurs know when to stick with something and know when to quit it. The average age of a successful entrepreneur when they start their company is 42. I think that people would be pretty surprised to hear that statistic because we all think about Mark Zuckerberg. Um, but they're 42 and they're they're usually on their third startup. Now, when you ask those people, I think, uh, AJ, that your intuition here is correct. If you ask those people to tell their story, they would tell a story about grit, getting knocked down and getting back up and sticking to it um, until they finally found success. And then they would be encouraging other people to just stick to it as well. Except that that's a story of successful quitting. It's both grit and quit, right? Because if they're on their third startup, it means there were two that didn't work, that they stopped, that, that then got them to the thing that actually helped them to succeed. But that piece of the story abandoning something that isn't working so you can turn your time and attention to something that will gets lost in that and it just becomes sort of keep trying. And I think that the the one of the big problems that we have is that there is no doubt that someone who is successful something at something has stuck to it, right? I mean, you read a book that I wrote. I stuck to it. I finished the book, ironically called Quinn. <laughs> um, but I finished it. Right. So so here's this successful thing that I did. And you can look back and say, look, that's the power of grit. Right. She stuck to it, even though writing a book is really hard. The issue is that what's true in retrospect, right, that if someone has been successful at something, they will have stuck to it is not true prospectively, that if I stick to something, I will succeed. And that's where we really get confused. Right. So like I saw a piece of advice on Twitter about three months ago, I think it was. And, you know, we're in a very bad macro environment for fundraising for entrepreneurs right now. Um, and I think it's getting tough for people to raise at the moment. And someone said, they, they posted, it took me 16 months to raise my seed series. So never give up. What horrible advice, right? Like, okay, you, you ended up being successful after 16 months. Like, how long do you think they should keep doing it? You know, do you think 16 months is... Too little? Too much? What about 24 months? What if they're still out at 36 months later, toiling away, trying to raise a round? Don't you think at some point they should take a signal from the market and walk away? Um, and I think that this is where things get really hard because, of course, the question is, how would you tell the difference between the two? When should you keep going and when shouldn't you? How do you not confuse, get confused by someone who has a very small chance of succeeding, actually succeeding? Because, you know, if someone has a 0.5 percent chance of succeeding, that means half a percent of the time they'll actually succeed. It doesn't mean that it's worth pursuing. Those questions become very difficult. And so what happens is that we end up just with like this simple rule of thumb, just stick to it, you know, and I think it's terrible advice. Unfortunately, adults usually quit way too late. 
So for most things that we do, assume so so the cab drivers obviously in some cases are quitting too early, right? Meaning they've achieved their goal. So so when we've achieved a goal, we're we'll often quit too early. So let's assume we're not talking about kids. Let's assume we're not we're instead talking about adults. When we're talking about adults, the usual case is actually that we quit too late. And that at the moment that quitting would be like objectively the right choice if we were omniscient, it will feel way, way, way too early. So let's think about why that is. So we talked about the fact that when you start things, it's a decision made under uncertainty. So here's the rub. When you stop things, that's also made under uncertainty. Exactly. What happens at the moment that you're deciding whether to quit is that uh, usually there's some if it's objectively the right time, there's always going to be a good chance that you could turn it around, right? Like like I said, like even if you only have a half a percent or a 1% chance of making it work, you, maybe you could. Now we're having to do like this expected value or forecast, right? We have to forecast the future. And what we have to say is the thing that I'm doing is not worth it compared to other things that I'm doing, right? But I don't know for sure. Because the only way for me to find out for sure whether the thing that I'm doing is going to work is for me to stick to it. And what that means is that we're trying to um, gather up so much certainty to the point where it's making you sick, right? (laughs) For real. We're trying to gather up so much certainty that there's no other way, that we can't ever achieve it, that there's no way for us to, to get there before we're willing to walk away. Richard Thaler actually said something super smart about this. He said, most people won't quit until it's no longer a choice. Like you already fell into the crevasse. It's already making you sick. You're, you've are you already used up all your sick days and you don't want to go into work anymore. You know, or you, you have a startup and you're down to your last dollar and you can't raise another round and you just don't have a choice but to, to shut it down. That's when most of us will quit. But that's long after you should. It's kind of like, think about it this way. Like if you're on, if you're climbing Mount Everest, the weather forecast has a high enough probability that you're going to be caught in a blizzard, you shouldn't climb. But the moment that you decide to do that, there is no blizzard. So what happens, and we see this repeatedly with people climbing Everest, actually, is that they continue to climb until the blizzard is upon them, because then they know for sure, right? (laughs) They know for sure that they have to turn around. So the question is, like, what is driving us to do that? Why do we want to get to that certainty? that we don't have any other choice. And that's where we can get into some of these problems. Like there's this issue of what's called external validity, which is how do we think other people are going to view us? Well, it's a lot easier if I can be like, yo, AJ, like I didn't have any choice. I'm not a failure. I I tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. Then you're going to be like, oh, I really admire her grit, right? So so now I'm going to get you, I'm not going to have you sort of looking sideways at me, like wondering like why I'm such a quitter. In closing, process-based decision-making outperforms outcome-based decision-making. All we can do is make the best decisions possible. The outcome is often dependent on many factors than just us. I think we need to change our focus from outcome to process, right? If you took all the information into account and you made a good decision, there's a chance it will turn out badly. The world is random, right? You can, you can look at all the restaurants and pick the best one and eventually there was rain or the fish was bad or, you know, something happened. You, 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 can't, you can't look at the outcome of every decision and, and, and hit yourself over the head and regret it. What we need to do is to focus on the decision-making process. If I 
looked at all the options. I thought about it. I tried to eliminate the bias. I did the best I could for the decision-making promise uh, process. Don't regret it. You did the right process. The fact that the outcome happened differently just happens. If you've listened this far, my guess it's because you want more out of life and make the right decisions to succeed in work, love, and life. If that's the case, then join us, the Art of Charm team, and hundreds of people just like you who are experiencing breakthrough conversations, supercharging their confidence, making better decisions, and growing an incredible network inside our world-famous X-Factor Accelerator program. The X-Factor Accelerator is where high-achieving, like-minded people meet, strategize, and unlock your hidden X-Factor to make sure that you get the most out of life's opportunities and unlock those doors, keeping you from success. We start every month with an intense goal-setting strategy session so you have a personalized plan of attack and remove decision fatigue from the equation. Weekly implementation sessions with opportunities to practice your conversation skills, rapport building, supercharging your charisma through powerful communication, and unlock the charm to attract the right people into your life. Imagine what you can accomplish with coaching and mentorship with the art of charm. What are you waiting for? Join us today at unlockyourxfactor.com. All right, before we head out, a huge thank you to our producers, Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Could you do us a huge favor? Rate and review this show in your favorite podcast player. We hope you have an epic week. Yeah, I remember you. It was-